This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and psychologist Harriet Lerner is joined in conversation by CIIS Counseling Psychology faculty Barbara Morrill to shed new light on the simple apology. This talk was recorded on March 23, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you. And I want to just also add my welcome to all of you and to this coming into this conversation and talk with Dr. Harriet Lerner, who is, as you know, prolific author and psychologist and consultant, and you're going to hear more about her. And I'm going to just start that right now because I have something, I, have, I feel a connection with Dr. Lerner, and it's, it's historical, it's symbolic, and not only is it a connection because we talked on the phone and met, which was lovely, um, but it's about her first book. So here it is, The Dance of Anger. And The Dance of Anger was a landmark book in 1985. And it's really quite extraordinary that this is one of the first books written about women's anger. I mean, just think about that. <laughs> and it's particularly, it was a landmark book in this country, but it was a landmark book also for, for me, and I want to say actually professionally, because at the time that this book was published, I was in my very first appointment at in higher education. So I was an associate dean of student life at Norton, in, actually in Norton, Massachusetts at Wheaton College. So Wheaton College was a women's college at the time. And it was a significant moment when this book was published because there was a lot of joy with our faculty, our students, all of us. Just imagine that this is a book written about the fact that women did have anger. I mean, that just think back, that was a big moment. So I'm so appreciative because we were jubilant when it came out because the, the mission of the school was about balancing curriculum toward women's scholarship as well as women's development as whole people. Can I jump in? Yes. Just to the introduction yes. and then you can continue yes. the introduction, which I'm enjoying, which is I was really jubilant too when it was published because it was rejected for five years, as some of you may know, by every publisher on the planet. And so when it was published, I thought no one would read it except for my mother and five best friends. But the thing that's really impressive is I wrote The Dance of Anger before the computer. And looking at how young most of you are, I know that you are clueless <laughs> of what it means to rewrite a book over five years on a typewriter. But I would just say we should light a little candle for my <laughs> perseverance or <laughs> stubbornness. So Indeed. anyway, continue. <laughs> That's great to know. So after that, she went on to write and publish 22 more books. 12, 12 more books. 12 more books. <laughs> Sorry, it seems like there were so many titles. And of course, you know that there's a big dance series in those titles. The Dance of Anger, The Dance of Intimacy, 
um, the dance of deception, the dance of fear, and there's a book called Marriage Rules, and um, those are just to name a few. And then we are here tonight to talk about this book, which is Harriet Lerner's new book called Why Don't You Apologize? Healing Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. She is one of our country's experts on relationships. And you just heard that she is also an expert in the area of the psychology of women, as I just shared in my story. Um, she served as staff psychologist at the Menninger Clinic for more than two decades. And she's also, with her sister, an award-winning children's book writer. And she and her husband, Steve, who's here in the audience, and he shows up a lot in the books. <laughs> so you need to meet him, too. Um, live in Lawrence, Kansas. And they have two grown sons, Matt and Ben, who also show up in the books many times. So I am really excited to really be here at this moment with you. It's, it's Thank very you. special. And we are going to begin, but just want to say a little bit, because there are a lot of people I don't recognize, and I want to say just, uh, just a couple of words about CIIS, and that we're a school founded by an East Indian, Haridas Chowdhury, who was a student of Sri Aurobindo. So we're about here, human potential, for individuals, for relationship, for groups, for societies, for changing worldviews, and for a wider East-West dialogue, and we can add North-South dialogue to that, and an expansion of consciousness and really beyond the dualities of the opposites. So in that context, I want to ask the first question of you. And it's a, it's a basic one, but it's a little bit layered. It's a couple of parts. And the first thing is always the origin question. What inspired you to write about apologies? And secondly, what is essential about them? In a sense, are they really vehicles for transformation? So a little layered, but... Well, um, we're all connected. We all screw up. We all unwittingly hurt people just like we're hurt by them. So the need for apologies is with us until our very last breath. And when they're done right, the apology is deeply healing. And when the apology is absent or it's a bad apology, it can be pretty excruciating for the hurt party. And it can put a crack in the very foundation of the relationship or even end it. So I've been studying this for a really long time because I think it's so important. But what actually got me to write the book, I mean, what got me to sit down and actually start is I got one of these really sleazy, blame-reversing apologies, really awful, that I put in the first chapter of the book. There it is. The, you know, it's laid out what he said, what I said, what he said. And I, I couldn't shake it off. And somehow... You never know what mo it's going to motivate you to s actually sit down and write. But I think that was the day that I just hit the computer. Um, and of course, it's a vehicle for transformation, for better or worse, depending on sort of how you do it and where your heart is in doing it. Thank you. The next question is a bit of a spectrum question, and it's kind of the, what are the most common mistakes in apologies, all the way to, and maybe some examples, and all the way to, 
What is a bad apology and examples? What are some mistakes and what's a bad apology? Which is very good to know because if you know how we muck it up, that will help you to not muck it up. But the most obvious way that we muck up an apology is with the word but. I'm really sorry that I yelled at you, but you provoked me. Or I'm sorry I forgot to call you on your birthday, but I was really busy. It doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The but makes the apology false. It always signals a minimization or an excuse or a criticism of the other person. So that would be the most common mistake. The other one is, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this, um, we also muck it up if you apologize for the other person's feelings rather than for your own behavior. Like, um, I'm sorry that what I said hurt your feelings. It wasn't my intention. I'm sorry that you took my comment to be racist and sexist. I'm sorry that you are so angry. Or um, I'm sorry that you're upset that I criticize your stories at the party. There is zero accountability. The real apology would be, I'm sorry I criticized your stories at the party. You had told me that you don't like that. It was wrong, and I will not do that again. And um, what are other ways? Well, obviously, it's empty if we apologize with a grand flourish but then repeat the very behaviors that we've apologized for. And another way is when we use the apology to shut down the conversation. Um, it's, you know, we're very wired for defensiveness, something we can talk about more. So for example, there's a couple in my office and, and the husband says, I said I was sorry about the affair like 15 times. You know, why, are, why do you keep bringing it up? I said I was sorry. As if saying you're sorry, you know, should close the door on further conversation. And of course, we also muck it up if we don't give a reparation when a reparation is due. Um, because sometimes words are not enough and, and there needs to be some kind of reparation. So those are the most common ways. I don't know if you would add any, Barbara, any, anything I'm no, I think you, not thinking of. I think you've got it. But as we go along, I, they, they get worse, the, <laughs> the, some of these apologies. Or, not, or actually, the next question is about the non apologizer, right? And I'm particularly interested in non-apologizers, no matter what. There is no apology. And of course, there's a spectrum here as well, from highly defensive to maybe controlling friends or spouses. But I have to say, all the way to our country's non-apologizer-in-chief. <laughs> and I think history has shown that, shown us that with leaders, top leaders, or generals, or presidents, or prime ministers, or dictators who will not apologize, I'm just questioning, what's the dynamic here? You know, it's got to be a similar dynamic to the friend or the spouse who will not apologize. And I thought you might be able to give us a little. I'm very interested in this question. I mean, I still think a lot about it. And one thing that is true at every systems level, from the political to what happens uh, with a family or a couple, is that the more serious the misdeed, the less likely that the person will be able to apologize. At the political level, it's much easier, for example, to apologize for, you know, getting a, um, I don't know, some fact wrong. It's much easier to do that than 
to apologize for bombing a whole country. And, and that's actually true at the personal level at all. If someone has harmed you very seriously, you're less likely, the apology is much less likely to be forthcoming. We can talk about why a little later. But to take it in a layered way, um, there, there's so many factors to the non-apologizer. One factor that will orient someone orient a person to not apologize is being born, well, not being born, being raised male. Um, in every culture that's ever been studied, uh, people who are raised male apologize less and have more difficulty apologizing than women, just like women tend to over-apologize more, which is another topic. Um, there are also contextual factors. It's, it's very hard in a relationship to apologize if the emotional climate of the relationship is that you feel more criticized and blamed than you feel valued and respected. It becomes more difficult um, for the person to step up to the plate and apologize if they're in a context where they're not respected and where criticisms really outnumber uh, statements of being valued. So there's that. And there is also the fact that we're all wired for defensiveness. We all try to protect our favored image of ourselves. And for this reason, we listen defensively. So if we're confronted you know, someone's angry at us and they say, we have to talk, you know, those dreaded four words. What happens is our automatic set point is to listen defensively, which means, which means that what we listen for, we listen for the exaggerations, the distortions, the inaccuracies that will inevitably be there. That is, we're actually listening for what we don't agree with. You, you can check yourself on this if you really pay attention. So it takes a lot of intention and maturity. If you're on the hot seat and someone is criticizing you, to enter the conversation only to listen for what we can really understand, for the essence of what the person is saying and to apologize for that piece. So there's that. There's the fact that, um, this is a very long answer because there's so many levels to, to why people don't apologize. You know, the apology is a dance that occurs between at least two people. And like most relationship dances, it often goes downhill. And um, a good example of that is, which I share in the book, here's an example from my marriage, where my husband, just to show how, how swiftly things can sort of go south. So Steve comes home from the grocery store with five totally ripe bananas, like at the same level of ripeness. And I immediately demand an apology. <laughs> There are only two of us in the house. No one bakes banana bread. You know, we're not big banana eaters. And he really should be down on his knees with remorse because we have talked about this banana thing like many times before. So I started out okay, you know, pointing, you know, I started out orienting toward the facts that this meant that three bananas are going to end up in the compost bin. But when he still didn't apologize, I then sort of moved to what kind of person, like what <laughs> kind of person doesn't care about letting food rot in a world where people go hungry? I mean, really. And then I moved to those four words that will bring any relationship like downhill. I said, like, what's wrong with you? Like, those are great words. 
So I move into shame. I move from trying to instill guilt to trying to instill shame. So Steve gets defensive, surprise, surprise, and tells me I should do the shopping myself if I'm going to criticize how he does it. And I argue back, and then I stomp off, because why am I suddenly the bad guy? Like, and why is, you know, I would never come home with five bananas at the same <laughs> level of total ripeness. So I'm clearly the better person and better world <laughs> citizen. You know, so that's how it goes. And I'm not going to apologize, and he's not going to apologize. Be. By the way, Steve, could you just stand up? I just, <laughs> just raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Just uh, if any of you want to talk to Steve about his <laughs> banana buying habits, you have my permission. And um, actually, I like to introduce family members. That, that row is family members for a particular reason. I digress. But my really awful experience when my mother, who died at 94, and she must have been about 90. And I was giving a, a talk to a very large audience, and I invited her to come, and it wasn't easy for her to come. And she was my guest of honor, which I mentioned, but I didn't point out who she was. I didn't ask her to stand up. So the unfortunate thing is throughout my entire hour lecture, these two women sitting in back of her did an ongoing sort of conversation about me, which was not about, you know, how brilliant and entertaining and, and educational I was. It was, it was awful. It was things like, can't she do something with her hair? And, you know, someone should teach her how to use makeup. And all these things, by the way, which my mother had been telling me. So, <laughs> so what I decided was from then on, if there's family in the audience, I'm going to like tell people where they're sitting so the people in back of them, you know, behave <laughs> appropriately. <laughs> so to move on, so there's that, you know, we're talking about why can't people apologize, and that's because, and especially in marriage or with kids and family life, you know, p people can go from zero to a hundred very quickly, and then everyone is so angry that no one is going to have the maturity and intention to apologize for that part. And um, one of the things I would do, for example, in my relationship with Steve is I was a champion. I am a champion apologizer, but I would like to apologize for exactly my percentage of what <laughs> I was to blame for Interestingly, I have never been more than 47% to blame. <laughs> so I, and I would want Steve to apologize for exactly his part, also according to how I would calculate it. So there are all of these sort of immaturities that get into failures to apologize. But the, the more, you know, the serious question that, that you asked, Barbara, about the really entrenched non-apologizer, and this is often the, the person who has done the more serious things. And what that has to do with is that to apologize for a serious hurt, one needs to have a solid platform of self-worth to stand on. And from that higher platform of self-worth, you can look out, the person can look out at their mistakes. And they can own up because they view those mistakes as part of a much larger, more complex, ever-changing picture of who they are as a human being. But people, many people, and especially people who do great harm, stand on a small, rickety platform of self-worth, and they can't allow themselves to really get the harm they've done, to really feel it, because to do so would threaten them to, um, to collapse into shame or a self-experience of total global failure and 
and worthlessness. So that kind of non-apologizer walks on a tightrope of defensiveness above a huge canyon of low self-esteem. And when I work in therapy, it, you know, I, I very often work with people where, often what brings people into therapy is there has been great hurt, often by the very people that were there to love and protect them, where there hasn't, the, the parent has, ne or the sibling, you know, has ne or whoever it is, the uncle, has never um, validated the person's reality, has never felt remorse, uh, et cetera. And the person that I'm working with may want to open the conversation. They may want to open the conversation with the person who hurt them. And there, there are many, many ways I want to help that person because I want to help them know how to do that. You can't just parachute down on your family where nothing's been talked about but sports or the weather, you know, for several generations and just, you know, have a heavy confrontation about the hottest issue. Um, actually, today, even sports and the weather are hot issues. Exactly. Now that I think about it, what is, what's a neutral subject? I don't know. Vanilla ice cream and Meryl Streep. How can you not like Meryl Streep? But um, <laughs> So what I want people to understand if they're going to open up this conversation and make themselves that vulnerable is that the apology they want will probably, will not be coming. It will not be coming. And that it's very likely that the person that they're opening the conversation with is only gonna wrap themselves up in layers of minimization and rationalization and denial. You know, I, it was for your own good. It was something about you that brought it about the way that you were, I had to do this, it was necessary, and even it never happened. Because what I want people to understand is that the reason to speak is not because you desperately need the apology, because that, you know, it's because that's the ground that you want to stand on, whatever response you get, the ground that you want to stand on is to hear the sound of your own voice speaking the truths that you really believe. Um, and that this is not an issue that the, the other person, your mom or dad, whoever, doesn't love you. This has nothing to do with love. It has to do that they do not have this self-worth um, that, that allows them to be able to listen without profound defensiveness. So um, it's a very long answer to a very good question. I told Barbara I didn't want to hear the questions in advance. I'm all for spontaneity. Beautifully said. And I just <clears throat> think about also those of us, whether you are going into therapy to work with that particular rickety platform or as we do here we train therapists and I don't care what place we're in we're working with that process from rickety to solid platforms in in all kinds of dimensions right so thank you for that I like that platform image, you like know, it. whether you stand on a big, sturdy platform of self-worth or not. Of course, the truth is that it's so variable, you know, that um, I have days and times and weeks or so forth where I will, I mean, my platform feels very exactly. rickety. And it's like, you know, what am I doing up here acting like some kind of, you know, expert or... Uh, and then there are other days when I feel better about myself. So it's really a more variable thing than, than we act that it is when we talk about self-esteem or self 
self-worth. And one of the cultural beliefs about self-worth and self-regard that I don't believe, I mean, it's a myth, is that if you have good self-esteem, then you don't care about anyone, what anyone thinks, and you don't need affirmation from the outside, you don't need to be valued. And I believe we all need that. I mean, you can pretend you don't need it if you have it, um, but we, we need that, you know? We need that. And it seems, it. <laughs> seems that's actually why you are so effective, is that you can hold all of the human experience. So the next one, this one is a, another one that I struggle with, and we all struggle with. <clears throat> so it seems that when apologies are absent on either side, so either side of a couple or either side of the aisle or either side of two different cultures, polarizing evolves um, all the time. So that deep polarization, whether we are looking at two cultures such as black and white, and in this country, given our huge racial wound of slavery, we have these ongoing discussions and conflicts and healings here at CIS all the time in these areas. And I mean, this is such a big one. It's not simple, but I wonder if there's just something you can speak to around the impasse of polarization. Polarization, well, let me start with smaller systems because it's sort of the same at every systems level. Um, you know, we are, again, our automatic set point as anxiety rises. And the extent to which anxiety in a system rises, uh, the, the greater the level of chronic underground anxiety, the more the, you see polarization and people moving to the extremes. So if I'm seeing a family that, and the anxiety is always hitting us from all sources, including survival anxiety, so it can be an outside source, you know, such as global warming or all the stresses that hit us as we move along the life cycle, as Gilda Radner, who I still miss, said, you know, it's always something. Um, so that we always have life is one thing after another, there are always multiple, multiple stresses. And the more they combine and the more they hit, the more you see polarization. And the, the simplest way to think about it is to just think about the fight flight response that occurs in mammals, you know, including Homo sapiens. So it just takes a little bit of stress and you'll see a flight response where people will cut off, they will distance, they'll stop speaking to each other. You know, you'll see families where in every generation you see tremendous cutoffs. Um, or you see a flight response. So it just takes a little bit of stress People will divide into opposing camps. They will lose the capacity for cooperation, for empathy, the capacity to listen to the other side. They'll get over-focused on what the other camp is doing wrong and under-focused on their own creative options to try to disintensify the situation so that that is something that will always be with us. So if I look at an anxious family, you will see a lot of polarities. For example, they might come in presenting with a symptomatic child, but then what I'm really seeing is that the parents are totally polarized and dad stands for law and order, no, mother stands for law and order, and dad stands for love and understanding, and they just constantly fight about little Billy's care, and there seems to be no way that they can get out of this polarity to reach some kind of consensus 
that they both can live with about how sort of to manage little little Billy. So, you know, because, and, and we really are hardwired for dichotomous polarized thinking under stress. Um, humans lose the capacity under stress to see two sides of the issue, or better yet, five sides or seven sides, because even talking about two sides of the issue, again, is an example of, of polarized thinking. And um, there's that same kind of polarized thinking about forgiveness that is a really interesting, I'm very interested uh, in that topic where it's like discussed in this very dichotomous binary way of either you forgive the person who hurt you or else you're trapped forever in a life of bitterness and hatred and you won't find inner peace. I mean, that's ridiculous. But that's the kind of polarized thinking, you know, the humans get into. So, um, you know, this, of course, is a complex subject. and Indeed, and this is exactly, you started on my next question. And, I mean, I just, I really appreciated this chapter in the book because it's such a sticky area where some of us look at so much of the material that's come out lately on forgiveness and it can be very guilting when someone is not ready to forgive. And I, what I found particularly helpful, and you might say something about it, that in the book, you give an example of a person who was able to accept an apology, but was not ready to forgive. And that's a really interesting place. And if you can say something about that. You know, I almost didn't write about forgiveness, and I ended up putting in two chapters on forgiveness. And in fact, the chapter which is most sort of interesting and took me longer to write than the entire rest of the book is called You Have to Forgive and Other Lies That Hurt You <laughs> because there are so many myths about forgiveness. And, you know, of course you can say thank you for the apology because you appreciate the apology, but that there has not been the sort of empathy or listening or repair that would lead to forgiveness. But, you know, the literature, it took me a long time to write because just let me say, is this the last question one, before we one, one, one other? One more. This chapter, it, the more I read about forgiveness, the more confused I became. Because apart from the great work of Janice Abrams Spring, who wrote a book on um, called How Can I Forgive You? And she's also written, I think, one of the best books about healing from affairs, which is called After the Affair. And she is the one person I read who, who basically says, you know, you do not restore your humanity when you forgive an unapologetic offender. He restores his humanity when he works to earn back your, to earn your forgiveness. And, you know, for me, the word forgiveness is, it's very much like the word respect. It's something that can't be commanded or demanded or just, you know, done for no reason at all. And in my work clinically, I see real psychological hazards of people rushing into a false, premature forgiveness that has not been earned because there is a, a, a predominant cultural belief that you're a better and more whole person if you forgive. And also that if you don't forgive, you're going to be trapped in, in some kind of, you know, 
life of obsessive rumination and unhappiness forever. And none of this, I mean, it's simply not true. And another thing, I don't have time to tell you all the reasons why it's not true. So just believe me for now. <laughs> you know, and it's also not true. Forgiveness is talked about as an all or none thing, like being pregnant. And that also is not true. You can forgive someone 98% or 2% or not at all or whatever. And I remember I, speaking of affairs where I was working with a couple where the, when the affair came out in the open, and the, man, the husband in this case had had the affair, and he worked very, very hard. I mean, he really was a real stand-up guy, and he worked over years to do all the right things and to really make a commitment to his marriage, to truth-telling, to really listening to his wife's pain and anger for as long as it took, you know, all of it. And then the, the therapy was terminated. The marriage was really very solid. And they came back to see me for some other thing, just once, something that didn't have to do with that, something about a child. It was just a brief consultation. And at the end of it, sort of apropos of nothing, he asked her a question that I'm sure he had asked her at home many times before, but I think, you know, I was there and I had earlier been through this process, and he said to her, do you forgive me for the affair? And she said, I forgive you 98%. Can't remember if it was 98 or 95, but let's say 98%. And he said, like, you know, what? And she said, I forgive you for the affair. I will never forgive you that when I was away, you brought her to our house and slept with her in our bed. I will never forgive you for that. And that was her 2%. And that's fine. Absolutely fine. And... Um, and but he, you know, when I say he had done all the right things, that included getting a new bed and being the one to take the initiative to insist on getting a new bed. But it's n it's not a simple thing, and um, that's a very interesting chapter to read. By the way, I don't want to sound like a big meanie here. Um, when someone has hurt me this has not happened that often, really hurt me, and has not been at all able or interested in listening or getting it. I do not reduce people to the worst things they have ever done. I understand that every person is larger and more complex, you know, than the worst things they've ever done. I may continue the relationship. I may come to love them or so forth anyway. I may love them anyway. But forgiveness is not the word that I can wrap my brain around when that person has done absolutely nothing to earn that forgiveness. And the other thing I realized, um, and then I'll answer the last question, writing the book, is part of the confusion in the literature is that the word forgiveness is not clearly defined and it has different meanings to different people. And when some of us talk about, or my clients come in and they say, I wanna forgive my father or I have forgiven my father, what they mean is, I just don't wanna carry this anger and pain. I don't wanna carry this on my back or in my body or my brain waking me up 3 a.m., favorite time for the ruminative brain, you know, obsessing about what he did or how could my ex do this. And when I question very carefully what they're talking about when they use the word they wanna forgive would more aptly be called letting go or moving forward, or not, you know, being stuck in the corrosive aspects of anger and blame. That's what they're talking about. Other people, when they use the word forgiveness, are using it in the deepest, truest, spiritual sense of the word. 
And when I ask questions, what I'll learn is for them, they will say things like they have a spiritual practice, they surround the wrongdoer, for example, in white light, they they feel the wrongdoer's pain, even if the wrongdoer is out of touch with their own pain. They, in their heart or meditation, they wish the wrongdoer to be happy and safe and well. And they, they have a profound, and work on having a profound capacity for this kind of forgiveness. And of these two ways, and of course there are more that I'm talking about it, one is not better or worse, they both you know, deserve attention and respect. But what's really interesting is when you read the quote, scientific literature, this has been in the New York Times, etc., and they say that people who don't forgive are more vulnerable to both emotional and physical disorders. If you don't forgive, you're more likely to be sick. If you read it carefully, what they're actually, the research, saying, and here's the confusion, is that people who are, their nervous system stays overheated out of chronic, obsessive anger and rumination and blame, that those people are more likely to be sick. But that is different. That should not be confused with this word forgiveness because there are many roads to letting go of that overheated nervous system other than, you know, a false and premature forgiveness. So your last question. Lovely. lovely. You have, an in, have intuited my last question, actually, oh. without knowing it. Um, so when I read this book, there were moments that I was amazed at the quality of the apology and felt, and it was spiritual, I felt some kind of timeless presence arise. <clears throat> and it was a sacred act. And, for example, Margaret and her daughter, Eleanor. And, and it was then that I was reminded of Martin Buber's book on I and Thou. And when one truly sees the other, it has such a capacity to transform the whole of that relationship. So it was really more, that's my reflection, but just maybe in closing to this part, do you get really surprised in very unlikely circumstances when something like that happens? When I was surprised in that particular diet, I was also surprised at the beautiful story you told on a TED Talk about Margot writing to her professor and the, what came from that. So just, just a reflection as a closing around this miraculous thing that happens. I was hoping maybe Barbara would ask a simple question, like, <laughs> where did I get my lovely <laughs> scarf or something I actually you don't know me well knew the answer to? <laughs> I think I figured out... Um, you know, I don't believe you can truly know another person in the way you're talking about if you don't know yourself, um, which of course is a lifelong challenge, if not the, since I'm in California, I should say the challenge of many lifetimes, but, um, <laughs> you know, what you're saying reminds me that there are apologies and then there are apologies and some apologies are very simple. Like you spill red wine on someone's couch and you, you, know, you just say, I am so sorry. And you offer to pay the cleaning bill. And then there are chapters like the ones you mentioned. There are a couple of chapters with, with mothers and daughters where 
um, I'm sorry is only the beginning of a much longer, larger, difficult process of the wrongdoer being able to stay present and really listen to the pain and rage of the hurt party, to really be able to sit on the hot seat and open up one's heart and really listen over time and also initiate conversations. We always leave it to the hurt or traumatized person to keep bringing it up. And then people say, well, why does this traumatized person keep bringing it up? I mean, you know, it happened way in the past. And well, you know, there are many reasons for that, but one reason they bring it up is that they're left to bring it up, you know, um, so that other people who either witnessed or know about it don't bring it up. But so th there are a couple, there's one chapter called The Most Stunning Apology I Ever Witnessed. And it is. It's a very short chapter. It involves a mother and daughter. The daughter had been abused by the father in basically a short period of time. The mother had no guilt. Uh, she, she had no responsibility, in fact, you know, didn't know what was happening. But the story is really about years and years later. Uh, of what went on between the mother and the daughter. And to sum it all up, I got you their bookmarks for each of you. You don't even have to buy a book. They're out there in one of the tables. And I wrote on the bookmark, no apology has meaning if we don't listen carefully to the hurt party's anger and pain. And I think that's the hardest part of the apology. So everyone should take a bookmark um, to remind yourself, or you could slip it into someone else's book. <laughs> yeah, that person, that person, who, not us, that person who doesn't know how to listen well gets defensive. But again, I mean, I, I think what you're reminding me of, Barbara, is there are apologies that are very simple, and where a heartfelt, I'm a really heartfelt, I'm sorry, does it, and then, there, you know, sometimes it's, it, it's not a short little sprint. It's really a long distance run. And of course, those are more difficult and, and very more amazing. Yes. More amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, thank and you. now the fun part, right? No, no. And thank you, I'm, Barbara. I'm, These I'm, are fabulous questions. Yeah. And it's delightful to sit here with you and, just amazing to see what kind of strength comes from vulnerability to be able to apologize. Well, thank you so much, and thank you, thank Barbara. Thank you. been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.